This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee Subcommittee on Africa and Global Health uh, will come to order. Today, we'll look into the ongoing crisis in South Sudan, uh, now nearly four years long, and assess the policies of the past with the goal of informing forming the uh, policies of the future. There is not yet uh, a nominee to serve as Assistant Secretary for African uh, Affairs Bureau at the State Department, uh, but the conflict in South Sudan has raged on regardless. It's up to Congress to draw attention to the plight of the South Sudanese people as the warring parties continue to place their interests above the, their citizens. Uh, this conflict has placed uh, or displaced almost 4 million people, uh, making this Africa's worst, worst refugee crisis. Uh, refugees have fled to Uganda, I think almost a million people in Uganda, uh, Ethiopia, Sudan, Kenya, and the DRC, increasing the burdens, of course, on these governments. Uh, more than 7 million people are in need of assistance, uh, with 6 million facing severe hunger and 1.7 million facing famine. That's uh, half of the population that uh, is uh, in a bad way facing severe hunger. Uh, many South Sudanese fear that they may be targeted by warring parties uh, because of their ethnicity, and all the while, uh, violence between South Sudan's government and rebel, rebel forces continue. This violence uh, includes attacks on American citizens and diplomats uh, that happened last summer, and it only increases the risk that this conflict will become a regional one, uh, with various neighboring governments uh, looking to secure their or advance their own interests. Uh, the UN panel of experts on South Sudan has even said that uh, various parties to the government have deliberately obstructed humanitarian access uh, to areas of opposition. Uh, the United States uh, obviously needs to take a fresh look at this crisis to determine first and most importantly the best way to bring peace to the people of South Sudan. The United Nations remains deadlocked and with the Security Council at a stalemate regarding additional sanctions and an arms embargo. The peace agreement from August of 2015 has also been called into question. And all of this uh, after the United States has contributed more than $11 billion to South Sudan in total since its independence. I look forward to hearing uh, what our witnesses have to say regarding the conflict and the path forward. I hope the U.S. can soon formulate a policy with regard to South Sudan that can uh, bring an end to this lasting conflict. And I want to compliment and thank uh, the ranking minority member, uh, Senator Booker, for uh, insisting that we hold this hearing and for his interest uh, in finding a, a solution to the, the issues that we have there. And uh, with that, I'll turn to him for an opening statement. Um, thank you very much. First of all, I want to I thank my ranking member for his work on this issue. Uh, long before I got on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, his leadership has been critical. Uh, I don't want to repeat the data and statistics that he already mentioned, but we know the gravity of this crisis uh, is something uh, of stunning proportions. Uh, the amount of human suffering and misery uh, the amount of famine and dislocation is agonizing and, and painful. Uh, one of you all wrote in your testimony, uh, in a sense, indicating uh, that there is a fatigue almost in Washington about these issues. Uh, my assurance is, is that there is no fatigue uh, in, on this subcommittee, and it's something that uh, we urgently uh, want to see addressed and addressed in the correct fashion. Uh, I want to try to, though, communicate a sense of urgency to the administration uh, that a failure to put individuals uh, that are focused on this uh, crisis uh, in place uh, is, in my opinion, a contributing factor 
uh, to the continuance of this crisis. As was said, at least indicated by more than one of the testimonies that was submitted, um, is that the United States has an essential role to play uh, in resolving this conflict. And I know there's some differences about the approach, uh, but our global leadership is essential, and our leadership in this crisis is as well. Um, I think it was important, as was pointed out in the, one of the testimonies, that this is not just about Sudan either. Uh, in some senses, this problem is being aggravated by regional proxy uh, conflicts and tensions uh, that have very much vital U.S. interests um, in the surrounding nations. And so from our interest in counterterrorism, our interest in greater stability and peace in that region, our interest in energy uh, and economic expansion, all of this holds America's uh, interests. Uh, but most of all, uh, and I know I speak for Senator Flake on this, um, we cannot sit here in the United States while there is such a moral crisis going on uh, uh, in, in, in South Sudan. Uh, and the values uh, that I hold as an American uh, urge me uh, to further uh, push and compel uh, the administration to craft a strategy. As we'll hear, there are differences in the strategies that are being advocated for, uh, but for us to have a lack of a strategy right now is wholly unacceptable. Uh, and again, contributing to the nightmare uh, that millions of people are experiencing in that region. And so with that, again, I, I want to thank the leadership of Senator Flake, not just now, but uh, over previous years in focusing on this issue and trying to bring light and attention to this moral crisis. Thank you, Senator Booker. Do um, you have any opening statement to make? Senator Young. I just want to uh, commend you, uh, Mr. Chairman, and uh, our ranking member for holding this hearing. Uh, I know that uh, South Sudan is, is plagued with uh, many uh, challenges, most of them uh, of human design and exacerbation. And, and so uh, hopefully in the course of this hearing we'll learn more about what's uh, going on right now. I think that's uh, part of the intention, but also what substantively we can do to make a difference. I know there are things we can, we can continue to shine a light on the situation, but um, if there are policy uh, initiatives we might embrace, uh, things uh, we might initiate, um, that will certainly be instructive to me. So uh, without further delay, I'll, I'll turn it back to you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Senator Young. It's great to have Senator Young on the subcommittee, given his interest and, and hard work on, on Africa. For our witnesses, uh, Mr. Josh Mazurve is a senior analyst for Africa and the Middle East with the uh, Heritage Foundation. Mr. Peyton Knopf, uh, currently a consultant with the United States Institute for Peace, previously served on the UN panel of experts on South Sudan. I met with both these individuals in my office. I really uh, look forward to their uh, testimony. I'm also uh, glad to have Mr. Ali Virgi, who is a visiting fellow also with the U U.S. Institute for Peace. Look forward to your testimony. Please try to keep it around five minutes. We will have uh, we have a nominations hearing directly following this, and then have votes at 11:30. So we have to wrap it up uh, uh, in time for that. But uh, thank you for being here, Mr. Missouri. Thank you, Chairman Flake, Ranking Member Booker, and members of the committee. Thank you for inviting me to testify today. Thank you as well for your strong advocacy for wise and committed U.S. action on what is undoubtedly one of the worst conflicts in the world today. My name is Joshua Mazervi. I'm the Senior Policy Analyst for Africa and the Middle East at the Heritage Foundation. The views I express in this testimony are my own and should not be construed as representing any official position of the Heritage Foundation.
Mr. Chairman, we now have nearly four years worth of evidence showing that US policy in South Sudan has failed. The warring parties comprehensively violated, sometimes within days, sometimes within hours, each of the accords they signed during the international negotiations the US supported. The collapse of the negotiations was not due to insufficiently persuasive or determined diplomacy by the international community, including American diplomats. The primary obstacles to peace are the many unresolved grievances inside the country and the leadership on all sides of the conflict, exploiting those grievances to attain power. The leaders driving this violence are uninterested in peace. Agreements reached between parties committed to violence will fail. Unfortunately, U.S. policy did not reflect this reality. Instead, the U.S. remained supportive of the negotiations even after it became clear that the signees of the many agreements did not intend to honor them. Furthermore, despite the stream of warnings it issued, the U.S. did not assertively penalize the warring parties for the repeated flouting of the agreements and the crimes their forces committed. Because of this, South, Sudan, South Sudan's leaders almost certainly believed, quite rationally, that they could pursue their war with few penalties. The U.S. must not return to the same failed policy of supporting counterproductive negotiations that also maintain the illusion that the South Sudanese government headed by President Salva Kiir, are legitimate and responsible actors. Fortunately, indications are that the current administration is not invested in trying to resurrect a nearly two-year-old peace deal that has proven unsustainable and was signed when the situation was dramatically different. The U.S. should instead enact a policy that puts as much pressure as possible on the warring parties so they will see peace as in their best interests. Even if increased pressure does not change their calculations, it could influence the facts on the ground to the point that genuine peace negotiations become possible. Such pressure would also impose a heavy cost on the regime for its deliberate and outrageous attacks on American diplomats and citizens in July 2016. Holding the warring parties accountable should include cutting all diplomatic ties with the government, building a painful sanctions regime targeting the directors and perpetrators of the violence, creating a coalition of the willing for an arms embargo, and a range of other measures I outline in my written testimony. Throughout this effort, the U.S. should engage directly with the people of South Sudan as frequently as possible. Bypassing those at fault for the violence would potentially drain their support and could embolden those seeking peace. What I am suggesting will be difficult, particularly as many of the regional states have their own interests in South Sudan that will complicate bringing concerted pressure against all sides. Uganda, for instance, intervened early in the conflict to prop up the Kiir regime. Several senior SPLA generals, including one under U.S. sanctions and one accused of war crimes, purportedly maintain homes in Uganda. Robust diplomacy will be necessary to overcome such obstacles. We must be mindful as well of the devastating humanitarian crisis in South Sudan. Aid organizations' prompt and determined response to the crisis ameliorated the famine declared in February 2017. However, the overall food situation has deteriorated in the country. As you noted in your opening remarks, Senator, now about 6 million South Sudanese do not have enough access to food. 1.7 million are on the cusp of famine. The U.S. should respond by leading an international effort to help frontline countries care for refugees and to deliver emergency aid inside South Sudan. However, organizations should deliver aid in a way that reasonably ensures it remains out of government and rebel clutches. Mr. Chairman, 
the best way, the best chance to end the violence in South Sudan in as short a time as possible is to reorient American policy to pressure the warring parties to the point they believe peace is in their best interests. Failing that, increased pressure could lead to changes inside the country that make genuine peace agreements attainable. Continued negotiations in the current context and the failure to substantively pressure the regime merely emboldens those victimizing the people of South Sudan. Thank you for your kind attention, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Mazurvi. Uh, Mr. Knopf. Uh, good morning. Uh, Chairman Flake, Ranking Member Booker, and members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to testify here uh, before you today. The views I express are my own and do not represent those of the U.S. Institute of Peace. Three years after the outbreak of civil war in, in South Sudan, the state and the 2015 peace agreement designed to end that war have unquestionably failed, and catastrophically so. As the committee is well aware of the horrific impact of these failures continue to have on the people of South Sudan, I will confine my testimony to another part of the story. The increasingly dire consequences for U.S. security interests in the region posed by South Sudan's dissolution and how the U.S. might respond. South Sudan sits at the nexus of intensifying competition among five of the United States' core counterterrorism partners, <clears throat> excuse me, Egypt, Ethiopia, Kenya, Sudan, and Uganda, and is a sinkhole that is exacerbating competing regional rivalries that risk escalating into a broader war with grave implications for U.S. security interests. Egypt and Ethiopia are locked in what they perceive as a zero-sum conflict over the use of the Nile, with South Sudan having lined up behind Ethiopia on this issue, South Sudan's president, Salva Kiir, has sided with Egypt against Addis Ababa. In addition, Uganda and Ethiopia's competition for regional hegemony, Uganda and Sudan's longstanding competition over South Sudan, and the demonstrated willingness of all four states to engage militarily across their borders compounds the volatile regional puzzle. Meanwhile, two other U.S. partners, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, have increased their commitments in the Horn of Africa, including a burgeoning relationship with Ethiopia's arch-rival Eritrea, and Qatar has had deep political and financial investments in Sudan for at least the last decade. The result is that a war fueled by South Sudan's deterioration is in fact part of a broader Red Sea security challenge, the implications of which have come into sharp relief with the recent GCC confrontation with Doha. The United States, therefore, has not only a clear moral reason to invest in ending South Sudan's war, but a compelling security interest in doing so. Fortunately, South Sudan's civil war is not as intractable as Syria's, and we should not be overwhelmed by its complexity, the dizzying regional Rubik's Cube I just outlined notwithstanding. This war can be ended diplomatically, but doing so will require leadership and commitment from the United States and recognition of some fundamental truths about the conflict which I will discuss briefly here, but have expounded upon in my testimony for the record. First, there is not a humanitarian or a peacekeeping solution to the war in South Sudan, which is fundamentally a political problem. Second, to paraphrase Tolstoy, every failed state fails in its own way. Despite the very real risk of the war escalating into genocide, South Sudan is not Rwanda, and one million people may not be killed in the span of 100 days. That does not, however, absolve the United States or the rest of the international community from the responsibility and interest in taking urgent action to end the war given the magnitude of the security and humanitarian crisis, as, as several uh, folks have outlined today. 
Third, while there is no shortage of bad actors in South Sudan, President Salva Kiir and his allies bear the preponderance of responsibility for the largest scale violence happening now. However, the international diplomatic approach to date, as Joshua alluded to, including the failure to impose any meaningful consequences for the countless violations of the agreement, have ceded military dominance on the ground to Kiir and his regime, perpetuating a belief in Juba that military victory is possible and leaving little incentive to compromise. Creating the conditions for a negotiated settlement will therefore require either a degradation of the Kiir regime's capacities or an enhancement of the opposition's. Fourth, the United States possesses the leverage and a number of diplomatic tools to shift the power dynamic vis-a-vis Kiir and underscore the unviability of a military solution. For instance, while a resolution to the civil war is not possible without the constructive engagement of South Sudan's neighbors, the United States has unique influence over each of them. Uganda is a case in point. Donors recently pledged over $350 million to support Uganda in dealing with refugee flows from South Sudan. Yet weapons transfers to Kiir's regime, documented by the UN panel of experts, that have either been facilitated through or by Uganda in the last three years, suggests that the price of these sales may equal or even exceed the amount of these pledges. The contradiction whereby Uganda continues to protect Kiir's regime on the one hand, applying for, and then receives international praise and financial assistance for managing the humanitarian fallout of that regime's actions, must be resolved. The United States could also exert direct leverage on Kiir and his cronies by applying financial pressures that do not require the UN Security Council. The Enough Project has done important work to describe at least 15 different options for doing so. The United States can further play a dispositive role in defining the international legitimacy, or lack thereof, of Kiir's regime. The legal legitimacy of the government is in fact questionable, and that ambiguity provides the United States with ample rationale to de-recognize the Kiir regime and or downgrade its diplomatic relationship, which would contribute to altering the calculations of the regional governments and of Kiir himself, not least because it would call into question his privileges and immunities as a sitting head of state. Fifth, and finally, the humanitarian operation is under siege. The Kiir regime is not a willing partner for the delivery of humanitarian assistance, is in fact the primary impediment, and in many ways benefits from the operation's reliance on the capital Juba and government-controlled infrastructure. New modalities for the delivery of humanitarian aid need to be considered in recognition of these facts. To conclude, Mr. Chairman, South Sudan's civil war is, is like a rapidly metastasizing cancer that is weakening one of the most vulnerable seams of the world order. The United States has both an abiding interest and the assets necessary to lead a new and productive diplomatic initiative to curtail the violence and ultimately negotiate a credible political transition. In order for such an initiative to succeed, however, the administration must immediately designate and empower a senior-level official with primary responsibility for South Sudan policy, who can deal directly and effectively with the regional heads of state to chart a course out of the abyss. Thank you again for the committee's consistent and sustained attention to South Sudan and for convening this hearing today. I look forward to your questions. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Vijay. Uh, Chairman Verlake, Ranking Member Booker, Senator Young, thank you for the opportunity to testify. Uh, The views I express are my own and not those of the U.S. Institute of Peace. I would like to share a first-hand personal experience. Um, In June 2017, IGAD convened a heads of state summit on South Sudan, at least the 10th meeting of its kind since the crisis began. Historically, the United States played, through its special envoy, a key role at such events, 
driving the region to work together to pursue common objectives and meaningful outcomes. On this occasion, the U.S. was represented by locally resident diplomats who had unfortunately received little direction from Washington and were not empowered to offer a strategy. The diplomats present were confined to reporting on events rather than shaping them towards a better outcome. There is no substitute for a dedicated representative to conduct the relentless shuttle diplomacy in the region and within South Sudan, leverage, cajole, and threaten intransigence where necessary, and speak authoritatively for the U.S. administration. The consequences of a lack of U.S. leadership at the present time are acute. A proliferation of competing regional initiatives by Uganda, by Kenya, by other actors, insufficient urgency in mitigating the worst of the violence, and a regime which continues to prosecute the war and fears no consequences for recklessness and intransigence. There is understandable fatigue and dismay within South Sudan, but recommendations such as closing the U.S. Embassy or ceasing all formal diplomacy and dialogue with the government and the opposition would be counterproductive. Such actions would not um, prevent further harm by South Sudanese elites. And while the conditions for conflict resolution in South Sudan might seem unpropitious, this is precisely why efforts must continue. To wait for a purportedly better time only will allow further crisis. The last peace process may have failed, but it did partially constrain the conflict. Mediation efforts matter. Consider as evidence this crude measure. How many people vote with their feet? From June 2014 to June 2016, by which point the EGAD mediation had largely concluded, the total number of persons displaced within and outside the country remained roughly the same. Today, a year later, as Senator Flake, you've mentioned already, there are four million IDPs, basically double, and refugees, uh, basically double the situation of a year ago. So I'm not suggesting the picture a year ago was rosy. However, in hindsight, the constraining value of even a troubled mediation process can be seen. If there is no avenue for genuine dialogue, violence will be pursued. At its June summit, EGAT created a new initiative, uh, the Revitalization Forum, to restore, ceasefire, and implement the peace agreement. These are laudable goals, but if present deficiencies in the forum's design are unaddressed, this effort will fail and the violence will continue. U.S. and international support for the forum should be conditional on three parameters. First, that the process be inclusive. A durable peace cannot be made with only some of the players. Second, talks must consider, uh, reconsider provisions of the agreement that are no longer fit for purpose. Third, the talks must have a very focused and defined time frame. The current peace agreement provides a calendar for the life of the government, concluding with elections. Credible elections are impossible if the war continues, if half the population is displaced or in need of assistance. Flawed polls will make things worse. Nor should the president's term of office be indefinitely extended. So a negotiated leadership transition ought to be considered. While some sanctions have been imposed on those allegedly responsible for atrocities, the measures to date have been essentially symbolic. More serious action, such as the seizure of assets looted from public resources, the construction of a systematic sanctions regime against those with command responsibility for violence, and the imposition of an arms embargo remain urgently necessary. However, if sanctions are to be meaningful, they must serve a broader political strategy, not be ends in themselves. There is a moral case for demonstrating 
there are consequences for committing mass atrocities and deliberately obstructing the peace, deliberately obstructing peacekeepers. But without concurrent political efforts, sanctions will not compel the changes necessary to bring peace. In conclusion, there is no way to describe the situation in South Sudan as positive. This is all the more reason to support a serious and comprehensive political process. Frustrated withdrawal will not end the conflict, nor will it offer hope to the millions who live today in crisis and uncertainty. Thank you, Senators, for your continued attention in South Sudan. I look forward to your questions. Thank all of you for your testimony. I appreciate it. Um, I think all of us uh, benefited from it, and uh, we'll start a round of questions now. Uh, Mr. Mazurvi, you, you mentioned agreements reached with uh, parties that are committed to violence will simply fail. That seems to be the case, particularly with the government uh, there. But you also mentioned that uh, we have to punish, that we, we have not punished those who have uh, not upheld their agreement. How, what, are, what are effective punishments uh, that, that we can do? What leverage do we have? Is it asset seizures? What, uh, what will be effective in your view? Yes, I, I think asset seizures are part of that. I, I, I think we all mentioned that actually in our testimony as one thing that the U.S. can do. Um, in my written testimony, I advocate for um, symbolic gestures like um, shuttering the South Sudanese embassy here in Washington, D.C., uh, expelling all of South Sudanese diplomats. Um, that would send the message that the Kier government no longer has the favor of the world's most powerful government. Um, I think that we can bypass the central government and speak directly to the South Sudanese people, as I mentioned in my oral testimony. The Kier regime, every time it sits across the table from a diplomat from the United States or from Europe or wherever, derives a certain amount of legitimacy. The optics of it um, send a message that the international community believes this man, Salva Kier, is a legitimate and honest interlocutor. No matter the statements we put out to the contrary, the mere fact that we speak with him and treat him as if he is part of the solution suggests that we believe he is part of the solution. He is not. He is a profound part of the problem. So continuing to talk with him in the belief that he is going to see the light or change course when he is shown over and over again he has no intention of doing so is a mistake. And there are costs to having those sorts of negotiations. It's not simply a net neutral to talk, um, to engage in uh, pointless negotiations. It drains U.S. credibility to engage in a process that has no chance of success. And um, that it's particularly important because there might be a time down the road where there is, the context is right for a solution. And the U.S. will need all the credibility it has um, to achieve that solution. Thank you, Mr. Knopf. Um, what is your thought about uh, uh, our continued recognition of the government? Uh, do we, are we lending undue and undeserved credibility? And uh, if we were to, to uh, cut that recognition, uh, would others seek to fill the void, uh, China, Russia, and others? Um, and, I mean, Give your assessment of that uh, that type of punishment. Uh, thank you, Senator. Um, 
I, I think there are, um, it is unquestionably an illegitimate regime, and I think it is incumbent on the United States, given the magnitude of the crimes that the regime has committed and continues to commit, to not uh, undertake a business-as-usual approach to its diplomatic engagement. Uh, as a former U.S. diplomat, uh, I believe very strongly in, in, US, in robust U.S. diplomatic engagement around the world. I think there is tremendous value in having uh, a U.S. diplomatic presence in South Sudan, if for no other reason than having as many eyes on uh, the situation on the ground uh, as possible uh, is, is to our benefit uh, and to the benefit of the people of South Sudan, uh, as well as our ability to engage with those who are trying to build a better future for their country as much as possible. But there are ways of doing that uh, without conferring uh, undue legitimacy, as Joshua suggested. Uh, on a government uh, that fundamentally, uh, both on, uh, legally and politically, uh, has delegitimized itself. And I think there is, uh, while, while Salva Kiir's calculation, or Salva Kiir himself, is quite intransigent, as Ali pointed out, uh, the United States, as, uh, as a world power, uh, can send a very significant signal to, uh, to neighboring governments, to our uh, European partners and other donors, um, by recognizing this government for what it is, which is uh, a brutal regime that continues to murder and plunder uh, its people. And, and perhaps more importantly, that creates, uh, it is not just for cathartic purposes that we should do that, it creates a political context, as I suggested in my testimony, uh, that uh, I think will be more conducive to the kind of negotiated settlement uh, that we all believe in uh, is so urgently necessary uh, for South Sudan. Thank you. Mr. Virgi, with regard to an arms embargo, it's not just uh, uh, those that you would expect uh, who have imposed or uh, um, who uh, would have opposed an arms embargo, but uh, countries like Japan have also. Uh, um, what is a reason for that? Why why uh, aren't we able to get an arms embargo, an effective one, uh, with regard to South Sudan? Essentially, the question comes down to the regional support for an arms embargo. And the region, um, the lead of the region is followed by then uh, other members of the Security Council, notably the Chinese and the Russians. Without uh, the support of the region, uh, and there is still great preventative value in having an arms embargo. There are plenty of arms in South Sudan, mm -hmm. but the government continues to acquire arms. It continues to spend money on arms. It continues to get more sophisticated arms. And so there's a real need, and that, that is not something which has been uh, very well uh, accepted by the regional powers. The Russians have lost helicopters shot down by arms in South Sudan under uh, peacekeeping flags, and yet... Um, are not willing to move. I think there are arguments that can be made. I think that argument has to be attempted again. Uh, the effort that was made in December to pass that resolution at the Security Council uh, didn't succeed, but that's not a reason to abandon the effort. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Knopf, you talk a lot in your testimony about the potential of uh, regional conflict coming. Uh, how, how likely is that, and where is that likely to start? Uh, I mean, Uganda and others haven't been shy about sending troops uh, across borders. Uh, is that where it's likely to start, or where is the, the biggest flashpoint? Uh, thank you for the question, Senator. It, it's always hard to predict these sorts of things with a 100% with a degree of uncertainty. I think, as I uh, sort of outlined in my testimony, you have a number of uh, 
dynamics that are coming into play. Uh, I think one of the most worrisome by far is the uh, deepening confrontation between Ethiopia and Egypt, uh, which has led both uh, to uh, consider and sometimes uh, in some instances engage uh, sort of proxy forces uh, to hedge uh, their bets against each other. Uh, And and that force is drawing others layered on top of a number of historical uh, competitive uh, issues uh, and trends. Uh, that um, deepens the the volatility and the and um, the the potential fu- multiplies the potential fuses that could spark this sort of this conflict. I think on top of that, you have a situation where, uh, as has been mentioned uh, on a number of occasions today, um, the the sheer number of refugee flows out of South Sudan are astounding, um, and uh, those flows are going into some of the most volatile volatile, rather, uh, regions of South Sudan's neighbors, northern Uganda, western Ethiopia, eastern DRC, parts of the Central African Republic, and the southern part of Sudan. These are not stable regions, and they have their own uh, very uh, deep-seated uh, tribal fissures and, and stresses. And so those will only be exacerbated the more uh, that the South Sudanese essentially abandon their state. Uh, so there's any number of uh, potential sparks. I think uh, the point that I'm, that I'm trying to convey is that while South Sudan uh, may appear as sort of a global backwater amidst, a, 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 sadly, a number of uh, very uh, tragic conflicts, uh, the potential for it precipitating uh, a much more devastating war is quite high um, because of all of these uh, the, these dynamics that we've just discussed. Thank you. Thank you for your indulgence. Uh, Senator Booker. I'm happy to defer to you if you have to go. I know you, there's multiple hearings at the same time. Senator Young. I'm good. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Gentlemen, I, I just want to start with the larger issue. Uh, there's wisdom uh, 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 to my colleague, who I always see as a peer, but he is a grandfather, so I now think of him as a lot older than me. Um, but there's wisdom in, in not having administration representatives here in the sense that there is really nobody within the administration that is focused on this issue. And it's my perspective, and you can disabuse me of, of that, that every month that we wait for this administration to craft a policy and a strategy to deal with this issue is an absence of American leadership and it's the allowance of the crisis to fester even more. And and so I I just want to have maybe get you each to weigh in for me on is my sense of alarm uh, uh, justified and the urgency that I'm trying to communicate uh, to the Secretary of State, to the President of the United States, about getting their focus on this issue. Uh, could you, maybe we can go, starting with uh, Ali, um, uh, Mr. Vergi, uh, um, just would you please let me know, uh, am I right to be seriously concerned that the United States of America has not appointed a special envoy that has not, is not focused, does not have a strategy on this issue, and that is a, a factor that is allowing the crisis, the humanitarian crisis, even just the attacks this is the number one place on the planet where aid workers are being attacked. Um, uh, is my concern merited? Absolutely, Senator Booker, it is. And most importantly, this is the signal that the South Sudanese government, those are fighting, see. This is the signal that the region sees. So right now, the U.S. ambassador in Juba is the senior official, and everybody knows that whatever she says 
does not come with any support of this administration or the State Department because of the vacancies and the absences and so on. And so she can say the United States does not accept this ceasefire violation. She can say that you must implement the peace agreement. But everybody in South Sudan knows that there's nothing that backs her up. The region knows as well that there is nobody to speak with a clear voice for the U.S. The partners of the United States, whether um, beyond the region, uh, internationally, who've been so instrumental in South Sudan, also know that. There are envoys meetings that happen, and the U.S. does not have uh, the representation requisite at those meetings. I mentioned the summit and what happened there. So definitely, the fact that there is an absence of U.S. Uh, political and dim- diplomatic leadership is a serious problem and it's a serious signal to South Sudan that, yes, we'll continue to feed you, we'll continue to provide humanitarian assistance, but in terms of a political strategy, you'll just have to keep waiting. Mr. Knopf? Uh, your alarm is very much uh, warranted, Senator, and let me just make one point. I think uh, I understand there's a very live uh, discussion here uh, in the Senate about the role of special envoys. I think it's a very important uh, discussion. Um, I don't think we have time in South Sudan for that discussion to, to uh, delay the designation, as I suggested in my testimony, uh, and as Ali is suggesting, of a senior-level uh, official in the administration to take up this issue uh, who has the stature to engage uh, in the region in a manner that can move the ball. Uh, and that involves being, uh, being able to have some difficult conversations with the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, with the President of Uganda, uh, with the Sudanese, with the Kenyans, etc. Um, and there are various models uh, over the last uh, you know, two administrations for doing that, including uh, sitting officials who are designated as the point uh, persons for a particular file, including on the Sudans, uh, without being a special envoy. And so I I would just encourage uh, all of us uh, to consider um, how to address the urgency that you so passionately spoke about, Senator, uh, in a meaningful way. And and before I go on to Mr. Messervy, could you um, please just put a little more color on the consequences uh, in terms of humanitarian efforts, the consequences in terms of violence, the consequences in terms of uh, ethnic conflict, the consequences, especially your testimony was really enlightening to me uh, when I read it because I I just didn't think of the larger uh, regional conflicts that are going on and brewing. Um, The consequences potentially of the regional conflicts and the consequences on the destabilization of those regional – could you just help me understand that the lack of America – let's imagine that it takes – we may have an August recess coming up. Uh, That's questionable. Um, um, September, October, we don't get this – somebody in place by 2018. Just a little bit more. Can you tell me what your expert – perspective is is on the consequences of the absence of American leadership going into 2018. Yeah. Uh, Look, the costs uh, of this war to the people of Sudan are uh, appalling. I think one of the things uh, that's has long been missing in South Sudan is that there has not actually been a serious effort uh, to count the number of civilians who have died in the last three and a half years. Uh, The few efforts or sort of proofs of concept to that actually suggest that because the vast majority of deaths in South Sudan are against civilians, where in contrast to Syria, many of the deaths are combatants, we may be looking at a civilian death toll that is akin to the war in Syria, but among a population that's half its size, right? Um, So as you see the depopulation of the state, as you see uh, death and destruction uh, on this level, 
there is, uh, there's no way there aren't lasting consequences in the region and for the neighboring states, as I suggested, in terms of you know, uh, exacerbating some of the innate um, weaknesses of those states or portions of those states. Again, I, I am hesitant to make too many analogies to Rwanda because they're very different circumstances. But we do only need to look at that example where a mass exodus of people ultimately contributed to precipitating a war in Congo that drew in nine other African governments. Uh, and, you know, again, the history is not, uh, it, it rhymes rather than repeating itself, right? But it may be rhyming in this sense. And more broadly, the, Horn of, the population of the Horn of Africa uh, is set to uh, increase by 40% in the next uh, 15 years and by 100% by 2050. That's an enormous population increase that many of the states, probably all of the states, uh, do not really have the capacity to manage. So layer on top of that, this sinkhole in South Sudan, uh, other conflicts in the region, Somalia, we have the Kenya elections coming up, we have uh, some of the regional, the intersections of regional interests I suggested around the war in Yemen, just across the sea. Uh, this is a, this is a, in some ways, underappreciated world hotspot uh, with, with grave consequences for U.S. interests. And I appreciate that, and with the indulgence of my colleagues, I'd like to get an answer to my question from uh, Mr. Messerine. I, I just want you to know, sir, I, I made the mistake of reading your testimony when I was in a particularly pugnacious mood, and you got me fired up. Um, uh, you call for incredibly uh, just aggressive actions, but the whole time I'm reading about it, like, if, 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 if you're right, and, and I, I have some concerns and questions, we may not have the time to get into them, my questions about your testimony, but if you're right, to execute that kind of aggressive strategy that you articulate, you got to have some kind of leadership guts and courage here in, in the United States, which we lack. So what's your perspective on the lack of an envoy or uh, particular American leadership that's focused even on this uh, area of crisis? Well, thank you. Um, I was in a bit of a pugnacious mood when I wrote the, the report, as you probably picked up, um, after reading too much about what was going on there. Um, yes, the, uh, it is a very aggressive policy strategy that I've laid out. Um, I think we need um, an aggressive, profound shift in, in what we've been doing given the scale of this disaster that we're facing, given the, the scale of the crimes, the, um, the breadth of the humanitarian crisis. I don't see anything other than very bold action um, helping us at all here. I don't want to say solve because I think South Sudan is many, many years away, unfortunately, from anything we could call a solution. Um, so I, uh, you know, I, I'll, I, I think my colleagues covered sort of the breadth of, of the crisis very well. I'll add just two points, one being that uh, criminality is increasing in the country dramatically. We've had a complete breakdown of the rule of law, um, unsurprising. But um, it's, so it's not just armed forces uh, victimizing civilian populations. You, again, have, have criminality throughout the country. Um, and then um, a second point is uh, Kenya, Ethiopia, and Uganda are all heavily engaged in the UN peacekeeping mission or the, the UN-sponsored mission in Somalia. And as um, – and they're, they're – fighting um, a very committed terrorist organization. But, but if I can interrupt before Senator Young gets yeah. regrets that he didn't, didn't take my offer to go for <laughs> me. Um, but the, just the question I just answered, you could do it in one or two sentences. Sure. If we don't have a special envoy or someone focused on crafting this strategy by 2018, that is a serious 
I, I don't want to use the word malfeasance, but a, a serious lack of American leadership. Do you, do you agree with me on that? Um, I think we need a strategy with people empowered to execute it, yes. or that would be, yes. Yeah, I don't uh, want to imp- impress upon you the special envoy. I know that's... Com- uh, right. I, but, but you just basically said to me, yes, we need a strategy and people empowered to execute it. If we wait until the next year, um, we are losing an opportunity and people will suffer as a result. Yes, and I, I think that's been the case for years, unfortunately. I think we've been adrift. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for your indulgence. My turn. All right. Uh, well, thank you, uh, Mr. Senator Chairman. Young, yes. No, that's right. <laughs> um, I, I thank all our witnesses uh, for uh, your re- really informative testimony. Um, in your prepared statement, uh, Mr. Messervy, uh, you note that a UN fact-finding mission has determined ethnic cleansing via killing, starvation, and rape is occurring in parts of uh, South Sudan, uh, and warned of the potential. For genocide, so you said potential for genocide. Uh, we had a subcommittee hearing and a distinct subcommittee hearing that I chaired on July 18, related to uh, the four major famines, this being one of them, uh, occurring around the world and related uh, uh, threats to U.S. national security, broader regional security, and, and so forth. And Executive Director Beasley of the World Food Program there echoed your point, Mr. Messervy indicating that uh, atrocities are occurring on a daily basis in South Sudan, perhaps bordering on genocide. So my question for all witnesses is, in in your professional judgment, do you believe the government of South Sudan has committed or is committing, is carrying out genocide? I'll I'll start on that one. So, uh, as you noted, and uh, I was quoting a, a UN official who made those remarks, the designation of, designation of genocide is um, actually a legal question. There's a very specific, as you know, there's a very specific definition. Um, and uh, I'm not a lawyer, so I, I really hesitate, hesitate to wade in, uh, particularly given uh, how fraught that, that term is. Um, and the implications that it carries. I, th- I think it's very possible that um, uh, in, in retrospect, people might look back and say um, this, there was a genocide, um, but I, I think more work needs to be done, more documentation, um, and the lawyers need to look at it before anyone can say, yes, this is a genocide or even... So for better or for worse, I'm a lawyer. I don't specialize in this area. I never did. I was a country lawyer. I, I worked on contracts and... and uh, people with leaky roofs and, and stuff like that. But um, nonetheless, um, I do understand this notion of intent and that it, that is required for genocide under uh, the Article 2 of Convention on the Prevention and Punishment on the Crime of Genocide, dating back to 1948. Any of the following acts committed with the intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group, and then some of these acts we know have occurred, killing members of the group, so there, all right, the action has occurred. So the question is one of intent. And so evidence would have to be forthcoming that uh, there was an intent to destroy in whole or in part uh, a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. And, and so um, uh, you're right, this would have to be litigated uh, to reach any level of finality. I'm asking for your professional judgment informed by 
readings, visits, and, and, and consultations with other experts as to whether or not there is evidence of intent. Mr. Knopf? I, I, thank you, Senator. It's a very important question. And, yeah. and, and I think um, well, I would answer it two ways. One, I think unquestionably there has been an intent by the government, uh, and which is dominated by a single tribe, the Dinka, uh, to change the demographic landscape in certain parts of the country. And one of the underlying uh, drivers of this conflict are a number of land disputes. I allude to it a little bit in my written testimony. Uh, so it, that has um, resulted in, uh, in ethnic clean, cleansing in order for one tribe to take territory from another. So there's very clear intent in that regard. The second thing, however, that I think complicates a clear-cut answer to your question, unfortunately, is that as the centrifugal forces continue to accelerate that are tearing the country apart, you're starting to see deepening fissures within tribes. So the, the president, Salva Kiir, for example, is, uh, is a Dinka from one part of uh, South Sudan. There, even just in the last couple of months, there have been, uh, in, 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 as has been, an intensification of rivalry and competition with another subset of the Dinka tribe, both from two different parts of the country. Uh, and that, uh, the pursuit, that sort of power struggle as it plays out, has, um, each has tried to play off then other tribes <laughs> against each other for their own advantage. So, it's not a binary context, say, in the way that uh, a contest, rather, say, in the way that Rwanda was, where you had the Houthis and the, and the Tutsis on, on one hand. So it's a slightly more complex landscape, which makes that judgment uh, a bit harder to arrive at. Um, so I, I hope that uh, somewhat helps uh, fill out the picture for you. And I, if, for a panel of non-lawyers, it actually uh, sounded quite lawyerly, right? Uh, he, he qualified everything. So, uh, Mr. Vershi, anything else? <clears throat> thank, you, thank you, Senator. Yeah. I, I'm not a lawyer either, but right. I, what I would yeah. say is that there have certainly been crimes against uh, laws of war. There have been war crimes. Yes. There have most probably been crimes against uh, humanity um, of some kind or another. Um, there have certainly been mass atrocities. I won't comment on the intent question of genocide. What I would say is that there has been very specific ethnic mobilization of armed actors by a number of different sides. There has been a very strong character to the war which has become increasingly polarizing amongst many, many communities so that people do not consider themselves South Sudanese first, but whatever ethnic group they come from. If genocide is to occur, it's going to be on ethnic grounds rather than on uh, religious or uh, nationality grounds. It's going to be on the ethnic dimension of it. So as bad as things are in South Sudan, it can always get worse. And this is really the problem, that in terms of 4 million IDPs and refugees today, yes. uh, it could be 5 million by the end of the year, etc. So I'm going to turn to the issue uh, with the chairman's indulgence of, uh, of sanctions, uh, seeing as I'll run over my time here. But um, Mr. Masservi, uh, again, in your prepared remarks, uh, you write, quote, the only way to move the South Sudanese leadership now is through co coercive engagement. You recommend building a comprehensive sanctions regime, Mr. Knopf. Uh, your statement uh, in it, you suggest that modernize uh, sanctions are needed. And, and Mr. Vergi, you are very clear uh, in, in indicating that um, if a new sanctions regime is imposed, uh, in parallel, you, you have to have a, a political effort uh, that is, is really ramped up. And, and so um, 
you indicate that current sanctions have been essentially symbolic. And so uh, what specific new sanctions, I don't believe anyone's spoken to this uh, for each of the panelists, do you believe that the U.S. should impose on the South Sudanese regime? Um, I, let me give you a specific example of what I'm thinking about. Right now, if there's a violation of the ceasefire, and we know there are violations of the ceasefire, the response from the United States and from other international actors is a statement, basically. What I'm suggesting is that every time there is a violation, we've got to actually demonstrate a specific consequence. Now, there could be a range of things. It could be designation under uh, Treasury rules. Say, well, this ceasefire monitoring report has determined so-and-so is responsible, and therefore we're going to go after their assets. <clears throat> Excuse me. What I think the problem with sanctions has been has been that you know, they've been intended as a, as a demonstration of, of signals, of saying, okay, well, we're not happy with you, and then there's sort of nothing else to it. What has to happen for sanctions to be effective is that they have to graduate. They have to be incremental. They have to go further. They should target uh, people who are involved uh, and connected with. They should go after in consultation with the region, uh, the assets, for example, that are held in regional banks that are mostly held in U.S. dollars. So there are things that the U.S. can specifically do, both in the financial sector and in terms of uh, national legislation here. Okay, so I, the general strategy is, is, is they, need to be, um, they need to be imposed in response to particular actions or initiatives uh, on an ongoing basis right. and then ratchet it up or, uh, you know, in response to good behavior perhaps then right. pulled away. Right? I mean, for example, if today um, the which, U.S. Which would, is symptomatic, if right. I could interject, of, of, of what Senator Booker, Booker was discussing, right, is we don't have someone intently focused on this. I mean, if today the U.S. were to sanction uh, one minister or senior official in the government, the basic effect of that is to uh, weaken him vis-a-vis his peers, who are still a whole bunch of bad guys. It's got to be clear that, you know, we're not just going to target one person, then that's it. There is a whole group of people who are responsible, and strategy is why it's very important. So sanctions are a tool to that strategy. If I could, Senator, just add very briefly, I think we sh- I, I completely agree with what uh, Ali has said in that regard. Sanctions are not a silver bullet. I would add, however, that uh, the frankly shameful absence of any consequence from the United States or anybody else in the international community over the last three and a half years means that we should not underestimate the impact that uh, even uh, minor (laughs) consequences can have at this moment. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit out there uh, that can have uh, send a significant signal, I think meaningfully, uh, as part of a political process, either to uh, the belligerents within South Sudan uh, or to the region. And as as Ali alluded to, the United States' unique capacity uh, to create great reputational risk on uh, the banks in the region who are holding uh, ill-gotten gains of this war that are also being used uh, to continue to finance and prosecute that war, right? right. Uh, and we should deploy that capacity uh, far more effectively, obviously in the context uh, of a broader strategy. But to date, the sum total of international consequence was the Security Council's designation almost two years ago, more than two years ago, of six mid-ranking commanders uh, on both sides of the war. Given all of the, uh, the magnitude of the crisis we're discussing today, that seems uh, not commensurate with the challenge, to say the least. So I, I'll just 
uh, close, uh, going over four minutes over my time. I'm grateful for the chairman for allowing me to do so and in, in, in indicating that um, this committee collectively um, has signed on to a letter received by uh, our, our State Department calling for uh, a diplomatic surge. Just about every member of this committee signed on to that uh, letter, have passed a resolution out of this committee, has not yet made it to the floor, calling uh, for a diplomatic surge, not just in South Sudan, but also uh, in, in Nigeria, uh, in Somalia, in Yemen. So um, I, I, I couldn't agree more with some of the comments uh, that have been made here today that uh, there needs to be a focused strategic effort uh, on each of these situations because it's undermining um, it's it, it's not just an affront to our, our values uh, it, it's not just something that that could lead to broader regional conflict and, and human tragedy um, it also un undermines our national security right uh, as, as we continue to see failing or failed states uh, in, in that region. So uh, I, I would hope that uh, we act boldly as you're encouraging us to do so. Well, thank you. Uh, th thank you, all of you. I wish we could spend more time on this. Unfortunately, we've got a, the nominations hearing that we've got to do before votes start in a half an hour. But uh, just uh, on behalf of the committee, um, thank you for your expertise. This certainly uh, has given us information. I hope that the administration is watching. I hope that they understand the urgency of uh, taking bold action, as all of you have advocated. Um, I, I think, uh, Mr. Berger, you said something telling. You said, uh, as bad as things are, they can always get worse. And I, I think that, obviously, we have to look uh, closely at the regional implications of this conflict um, and uh, if the in-country uh, consequences aren't dire enough. So thank you uh, for your testimony. and. Senator Booker. I just ask to have a few seconds to just echo uh, the sentiments already expressed. I did not only thank you all for your expertise, but it was clear in reading all of your testimony, even the testosterone-laden testimony, Mr. Messervy, uh, that you all, uh, this is very personal to you all. You all care about these issues, um, and, and you have a lot of compassion and heart. And I, I just uh, want to reaffirm the bipartisan commitment you see on this committee not to let this issue slip. Uh, we will be pressing very hard um, that this administration uh, lean on the wisdom uh, uh, that's being expressed by people like yourselves uh, to institute a policy. We, this is an, a, an, an anguish uh, and, and, and tragedy of global proportions. Uh, the suffering here should alert all people of, of good conscience and humanitarian concern, and it should compel us to act, not just to bear witness to tragedy, but to act. And I'm just grateful that you all um, passionately feel the same, and I, and I commit to you um, that this committee in a bipartisan fashion will press uh, to try to find some uh, end to the suffering and, and, and greater justice for that region. Thank you. Well said. On behalf of the committee, thank you for your testimony. This hearing stands adjourned.